Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferentscom slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 72. Great interview coming up in this one. I chat with engineer, composer, and musician, Yuri Lasoyvana. We get into all kinds of stuff from classical ensemble recording to weighing the cost of higher education in the arts, working for sure, jingle writing, and the importance of acoustics. But before we do all that, I wanted to get into something that I'm sure will take a couple tries to flush out, so this will be round one. In the interview, Yuri mentions that he's passionate about being an expert. And having put well over my 10,000 hours into mixing and recording music, I'd say I'm pretty passionate about being an expert as well. But I've really been going round and round with this idea of expertise and the state of the world today. At times, I feel like we're in this era of the death of expertise. Like nobody seems to care whether you're an expert or not. And as somebody that prides themselves on the knowledge and experience they've gained over almost 20 years of making music, there's a part of me that gets pretty pissed about it. So first off, what do I mean by the death of expertise? Well, quite simply, I feel like there is less emphasis put on the professional background of a person who is doing a service or sharing tips or whatever. Nobody seems to care as much as they used to. And I think as a result, there's a lot of misinformation being spread around about all kinds of stuff. Example, when I'm feeling uninspired in the mix chair, I'll turn to a source of information like Mix with the Masters or something of that nature. A source where I know I will get insight from the engineers and mixers that I was inspired to get into this business to be like. And sure, I might flip through some random YouTube videos for fun, but I find that generally there's a very obvious lack of experience behind what is being said. But sometimes it's genius because it's not what I would expect, nor is it what I think is, quote, traditional. And that's where I go round and round about the idea of expertise. There are countless sources of information on the internet. You can skip a college degree and probably learn how to do anything you want with a combination of online courses and YouTube videos, etc. Let's continue the mixing inspiration example. I want to learn from an expert. And what is an expert to me? It's somebody that has been making records longer than me. So decades, hundreds and hundreds of records made. I don't want to take tips from a bedroom producer who I don't relate to. But if you're just learning Fruity Loops or just downloaded Logic and got your first MIDI keyboard, that kid on YouTube who's made a thousand beats is an expert to you. They're self-taught using the same tools that you are. They have similar experiences and they might come from similar places musically. The same way that I relate to an engineer that came up in a big studio and cut their teeth for years as an assistant. I also see this death of expertise pop up in my work as well. I, the quote, big, mighty, professional mix engineer, will send what I think to be the best version of something to the client, who may in turn disagree that what I've done is the best version of the song. 
maybe that client is significantly less experienced than I am. It can be tempting to get on the soapbox and explain why making XYZ choice isn't pro and won't sound good, which obviously I would never do. The flip side here is the number of times I've learned a trick or done something that I've never done before because that's what the quote unexpert mixer client wanted is mind blowing. I guess you could say that they're the expert when it comes to their music, not me. So think about this. The opposite of an expert is kind of like a jack of all trades, right? Isn't that what every musician has had to become? The songwriter, the producer, the engineer, the mixer, the marketing person, the tour manager, etc. The likelihood that the person you're working with in this industry has done the job you're doing for them is pretty high, which means they will have an opinion and they may not view you as the expert that you view yourself as. That's pretty easy to get frustrated about, right? But remember, before you were, quote, an expert, didn't you also do everything? I did. I tuned vocals. I added drums. I recorded every band I could find for no money. I mixed anything. I mastered things. I did a million things I wasn't an expert at. And that's part of the learning curve of this business. So I guess the point here is, you know, like I said, this is a topic I've been bouncing around for a while, and it'll probably take a couple tries to get out properly. But I think the point of this first version is that I don't actually think expertise is dead at all. I think because of the interconnected nature of our world today, there's an expert for everybody. Where you are in your career is going to define who you turn to as an expert. My expert is probably going to be different from your expert. What's important is that you find people that you relate to and that you trust when you go out to learn new stuff. And remember, just because you have your 10,000 hours, that doesn't mean there isn't something to learn from someone else's 2,000. Today's guest is musician, engineer, and educator, Yuri Lasoyevanov. Yuri is currently a product expert and marketing development specialist at Sure Microphones. Prior to that, he was an instructor and the chair of the recording arts department at Flashpoint Chicago. And along with all of that, he still actively records and specializes in recording acoustic ensembles, both in studio and on location. So welcome to the show, Yuri Lasoyevanov. How did I do on your name? How, did, I, did I get close? You did great. <laughs> okay. I've done a lot of these, and that's probably been the best one so far. Okay. All right. Well, if you feel you need to <laughs> repronounce it for our audience, feel free. No way. That was fantastic. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll take it. So, dude, it's good <laughs> to see you. I'm glad we, uh, we connected at NAMM a couple, yeah. I don't know, it was like a month ago? About, yeah, a little over a month. So that was your first NAM as a Sure employee. How was that? Was that like, it's got to be hectic for anybody working for one of those vendors at those things. Oh my gosh, it was so hectic. It was great. I've gone to so many NAM shows back in my education days as somebody that would just attend and just talk to people. And, you know, you never think about how how much time of a, of a person's life you're taking just by talking to them until you actually work NAM <laughs> and you're on the other side of it. You know, you're like, you're, you're in this little booth and you're kind of like, it's almost like being in a little jail cell in a way, in, in a positive way, but you can't leave. And so whoever comes to talk to you, you're talking to them. And if there's five people there at the same time, or if there's like 10 people there at the same time, and if there's one person that keeps asking you questions, like everything has to be addressed. Oh, yeah. And that was a very, very interesting experience to me, especially like with a company like Sure, with like a legacy company, like what we have, you know, 100 years of experience. I'm here trying to show off this beautiful new microphone that we just released. And then somebody comes in and starts asking me about phono cartridges from like 25 years ago. And I'm like, dude, I love that stuff, but I know nothing about it. And <laughs> But I have to listen and I have to like answer. So that, that was, it was a really interesting, the convention circuit is a very interesting experience for me. Have you been doing a lot of that since you started with Sure? 
I mean, NAMM is by far the biggest. Yes. So that's part of my job is to go out and talk about our products. And I don't want to disregard people that talk about our legacy products. You know, it's great. I love it. But my primary job is to be like, here's the new stuff. Come play with it. Yeah. Let me talk to you about it. <laughs> so then are you saying that there aren't like big meetings at Sure where everybody just sits around a table and like high fives and talks about the SM57? <laughs> we do. Uh, <laughs> no, we don't have too many meetings about the SM57 and SM58 these days. Um, you know, we we track the sales of it, but that's about that's about it. We don't uh, we don't question anything about its design or how we approach it or anything like that. <laughs> I mean, come on, it's the ultimate microphone. Anyway, uh, so people should know this isn't like a sponsored podcast. Just we're talking about sure. We're buddies from college, but I do want to ask you, what mic are you talking into? I have an SM7. I've, what is this thing? So this is the MV7. So this is like a little cousin of the SM7B. Not the same mic. Um, you know, one of the first things that we tell people when they're comparing microphones is that this is not supposed to sound like an SM7B. If you want it, get an SM7B, right? We don't have any other. Okay. This came out a little after the pandemic started, specifically for the podcast market. So this is a tuned microphone specifically for voice. I don't know if you can see it here, but I'm using the USB connector, but it also has an XLR connector. So you can run two simultaneous signals out of it at the same time. Oh, it goes out both. That's pretty dope. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of its big selling points is like, I'm talking to you via USB. And if I wanted to record this at the same time, just straight analog without any processing whatsoever, I could do that simultaneously. Oh, that's cool. So I could basically get that into uh, Riverside or Zoom and then have the XLR hitting, you know, like one of those just two-track recorders as a safety on the side. That's pretty sick. Yeah, or yeah. a dog. You can just go right into Pro Tools through your interface. Either way. Nice, that's cool. Mm-hmm. All right, so now that I know what that is, we can move on. My curiosity is satisfied. <laughs> Dude, so um, I, I know we went to school like a long time ago mm-hmm. <laughs> at this point. I don't remember. What was your instrument? <laughs> My instrument was piano. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I was a piano and keyboard player. I think you and I had, we had a couple of classes in the MP&E department. And uh, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I noticed you because you would come to class with this red Bojangles hat. <laughs> was that you? <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, it was hiding my ponytail. Jesus. <laughs> was that what it was? Yeah. And, and, and it was just so noticeable. Like every day, there's like the guy in the red hat. And, and I had no idea what Bojangles was because, uh, you know, I'm from Chicago. We don't have that here. And I'm like, all right, man, this guy's got a style. Well, I don't know if it was a style, but it was there was a thing <laughs> going on for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'm glad that that worked. Maybe I should bring that hat back. <laughs> well, now you're going to have to. You're going to have to wear it to one of your podcasts and be like, hey, <laughs> this is my old college hat. Oh, my God, that's amazing. I think it didn't make it. it it's in the trash, but... Um, oh, that's sad. <laughs> uh, we got to do your story like we do with everybody. Is um, mm-hmm. Is piano how you got sucked into this whole thing? Yeah, I've been playing piano since, my God, my Soviet days. Like, I started when I was little back in uh, the, the mother country, back in Belarus. And then, you know, we came to 91. My sister was like a competitive piano player. I was never as good as she was. I knew I was never going to hit the classical circuit or any performance circuit whatsoever. She actually was a fantastic classical performer and she was career based. So I kind of followed in her footsteps. You know, I started playing piano because my older sister was playing piano and I wanted to be cool like her, right? So I started out relatively young, took it relatively seriously. And then when we moved to the United States, uh, I picked it up a little bit more seriously here. Still classical piano. We had, you know, the Russian classical teachers and all that stuff. And then at a certain point, she decided she didn't want to do music anymore. She decided to focus on science and some other stuff. And then, you know, I had the talk with my parents, as, as all of us do when we decide to go into the arts as a career. You know, I sat my parents down and I was like, hey, I want to work in music. I want to do music things. 
And my mom's like, are you sure? Like, you're really good at math. Don't you want to do engineering like your parents <laughs> or something? <laughs> and I'm like, no, man, like, I love playing piano. I, kn- I know I'm not going to be a piano performer. Like, I'm pretty self-aware. And I was like, I want to do something that has to do with music. And my mom was like, all right, well, here's the deal. You can go to music school if A, you get into a good school. B, you do something that's technical, that's not strictly music oriented. And C, we're an immigrant family. We can't pay for it. So <laughs> either you're getting a scholarship <laughs> or you're taking out student loans because, uh, you know, we'll, we'll support you, but we can't financially support you. So that's kind of what happened. And, and that's one of the reasons why I chose Berkeley is because um, they had a good combination of musical education and technical education. So, you know, back then it was the top. I think it probably still is the top, but I know it's got some competitors nowadays. Yeah, there's a lot of schools popping up in the technical space. When we went to Berkeley, it was expensive. It's more expensive now. Just college in general is just like getting out of control. Mm -hmm. Now that you've had a career in music for close to 20 years, like I have, do you think the current price tag of some of these institutions is worth the outcome? That's a great question. I certainly don't ever want to discourage people from going to school in the arts, but I do... I have to be careful how I answer this. Uh, I want want to sound positive. As a former educator. Well, that's true. But, you know, I've had this talk as an educator. Now, I've had the maybe this is not for you talk with with some students. And sometimes I do it as a bluff, too, which is funny. Um, Because sometimes somebody has real potential, but they just don't see it. And I'm like, you know, maybe you should try something else. And they're like, no, no, I really want to do this. I'm like, do you really? And then they turn it around. It's great. But no, like, objectively speaking, I think... School is incredibly expensive. And I think lately some schools have gotten much, much more generous, understanding that the ROI on getting an arts degree is, financially speaking, is not particularly high on average. You know, so there's some schools like Yale that you know, every single music student comes in for free, so to speak. And uh, I know some other schools are doing some very, very generous things nowadays. Oh, that's amazing. I didn't know that. Yeah, it is. I don't know if they're still doing it. I know they announced it if, like a while ago. I'm assuming they still do. You know, like we can look it up, I guess. But for a while, their music students were full tuition paid. Amazing. Because they didn't want them to focus on their, on their financial future while they're studying. You know, like they wanted they wanted them to focus on their music, which is great. So the short answer to that question, and it's such a fantastic question, and like I, I look at it as an investment. And you know, I had this talk with my parents, and if somebody wants to be a symphony performer, for example. I work with a ton of classical musicians, just a ton, like so many, and they're amazing. I'll just put it this way. I had a meeting with somebody who uh, runs a conservatory-style program, like a very, very successful, very, very famous conservatory-style program, which I'm not going to name because I don't want to throw anybody out there. But he was the dean of the program, and, and he and I were chatting, and I was helping them update their music technology stuff. I was just doing them a favor and going like, hey, you know, Let's do this. Let's talk about microphones. Let's talk about acoustics and some other things that classical musicians don't generally talk about when they're in conservatory, right? And I asked him what the impetus was. And he's like, look, I've got nine oboe students in my school, in this one school, right? All of them want to play in the symphony. There are maybe three openings a year for oboe in the the major symphonies in the United States, right? Like maybe none of them are going to play in the symphony. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's such an interesting thing. Arts is so competitive and it's so out there. So going back, it really, really depends on the goals that you're trying to achieve. Because I work with some people that play in major symphonies and I work with some people that 
they went to the same programs and they never intended to play in major symphonies. So it's about setting goals and about understanding exactly what you want to be doing and being financially responsible about it. And if you approach that, and that's a lot to ask for an 18 year old, you know, like that's, <laughs> yeah, oh, totally. <laughs> but you know, like going into the arts is a risky endeavor. And I think it's very, very important for any students at any age to understand the risk reward equation of that. And if they can accept that and they can stomach that, then they should absolutely go for it. You know, on the other hand, I've worked with some students that, not just in my school, but in other schools, they want to choose arts because they think it's cool, specifically audio engineering. This is a conversation that I've had with so many people that I've mentored. Like, they want to be the person behind the board. They want to be the person in the studio with the artists and all this other great stuff. And um, the first thing I tell them is, I know that sounds great, but you know, if you're going to do this for a living, the major labels are not going to pay your living wage. Like, you're going to be working with everybody. And they're like, what do you mean? And I'm like, you know, like, yeah, you, you could work with Beyonce, right? But Beyonce cuts an album a year, maybe two, maybe two albums a year, maybe one album every three years, right? Yeah. That's not going to pay your bills. Like, it's, <laughs> you're going to have to record a lot of people that are not Beyonce. Like, yeah, that's right. I try to kind of ground them in the sense like, like you know, this is a job. You're going to do this with major label people and you're going to do this with other people. It's, it's not always so glamorous. And number two, if somebody approaches it with stars in their eyes and, they, and they're going for the glamour, it's going to be a very, very difficult adventure for them. Just Oh, yeah. I'm not going to be a Debbie Downer and say, like, no, you're not going to make it. You know, like, I can't, I can't predict who's going to make it, so to speak, whatever, whatever making it means, right? But, like, look, man, if you're doing audio engineering to become famous, like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, no, like, like, we're some of the most, like, the most successful people in our business are usually the most humble ones. We're the ones that just get the job done and go home. Yeah. And that's tough for some people. And again, when you're 18, you just don't know. You're not even mature enough to make certain life decisions. So it's like, so they're very difficult conversations to have. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a very long answer to a very simple question that you just asked. So. No, that was, a, that was a great answer. I mean, I'm, I like to ask people that have some kind of education background, like a question along mm -hmm. those lines, because I kind of straddle the line. Like, I don't regret going to Berkeley in any way. I think it was amazing. But now... You know, I recently had a daughter and now I think to myself, like, what is she going to do like 18 years from now? Like the way the world is now versus when we went to school, mm -hmm. there's so much opportunity to learn. Like, let's say, well, we'll just use a hundred grand because it's an easy number. If you have a hundred thousand dollar education, think of all the things that you could do with that hundred grand. If you're a focused person who has goals, like if you want to play in a symphony, you could be working with the best teachers in New York for $10,000 a year, $15,000 a year. And you could spend that $100,000 another way than sitting mm -hmm. in a classroom. But on the other side of that, if you're talking about music business or music therapy or anything that I think is more than just practice and focus, then I think it's super important to have that structure and have that information presented in the way that it's supposed to be presented. But anyway, I'm just, I like to ask because I'm always curious Yeah. because I don't know, the world is just such a different place now where there's just so much access to information, different paths for everybody and doesn't yeah. seem to matter. And I think you've hit on two very, very important points at the same time. And just to close this loop a little bit, point number one is like the pipeline to the symphony, right? If you're going $100,000 in debt to go play in major symphonies, then you're not you're not starting out on the right foot. <laughs> I know this sounds really, really bad, but it's that world is so competitive. Like if somebody's not giving you a scholarship to go to college for this stuff, and there's generally a college pipeline into this world, then you got to start looking at other options. Like I hate to be that person 
And it's not a question of talent. It's just a matter of like, you do not want to be in that much debt trying to be a performer getting into the symphonies. Like that is just, that's, that's murdering your, your chances and being happy <laughs> in the future. Yeah. But to your other point, I think now compared to 20 years ago, there are so many other ways to make money doing music. Mm-hmm. Those doors were not open 20 years ago to us when we were at Berkeley. So we're looking at two different kind of pipelines into the world, like the, the super competitive do this one thing pipeline, or you can play in small ensembles and actually make decent money nowadays where you're not playing in the major symphonies. You can always teach, you can always work in a technical role if you got the technical education, whether you went to college for it or not. You know, like yeah. I was not an engineering major and I ran an engineering audio department at a college like you could learn those skills and like working for manufacturers and like I'm, one of the reasons i'm so happy to be on this program is that a lot of times people don't think about you know joining the corporate manufacturing world which is really really busy and yeah we do some really cool stuff and it's, and it's a fun job that people don't think about when they're in college because they all want to do you know the one thing in their dreams so to speak yeah well you never know like I was just talking about this on a podcast I did the other day. It's like you never know where the road's going to take you. You kind of have to be open to everything. And you got to try a lot of different things. But I think the core to trying all those things is understanding what you really want. Yeah. And if something that you would have never considered, we'll use manufacturing gig like you've taken, Mm -hmm. you probably would have never considered that 20 years ago. But you see it and you know what you want. And you're like, hey, I can get what I want out of this. And this looks fun. These people are great. I'm going to do this for a little while. I'm going to check this out. Right. But you have to understand what you want as a person, which a lot of it's quite a journey for most people. (laughs) It is. And your priorities will change over time. Yeah. As you know, when you just had a daughter and, you know, things change. Very quickly. (laughs) Yeah. And like, I will be honest with you. When I, I went to Berkeley to go write music for pop stars, that was the dream. You know, like I I told this to my parents. I told this to my friends when I was in high school. Like, I'm going to go write for Christina Aguilera. That's what I wanted to do. Like... I've never done that. I've never produced a pop <laughs> single for anybody, for any independent artist even. Like, That's funny. It's just interesting because that was, that was my gateway and that was my dream. And, and to your point, like, things just change. You discover new things that you enjoy. Like, you go, the roles will take you elsewhere and you got to be ready for them. Yeah. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. So when you left Berkeley, did you go straight to Chicago? Mm -hmm. Is that when you started teaching at Flashpoint? No, I worked in the advertising world. I was a composer first, and I worked at a couple of different places. One really, really big one, a big advertising company here in Chicago. And um, yeah, I wrote jingles. Like that was that was my thing. As an in-house composer? Yep. Both in-house and freelance, depending on what the commercial was. Very cool. I was part of a team of people. So it wasn't like, I wasn't the guy. I was one of the people, you know? But it was great. Like we ate like kings, you know, McDonald's would pay for us to eat steak dinner while we were working on a McDonald's commercial. Like it was... <laughs> I'm not going to say it's, it was Mad Men in the, you know, the early 2000s, mid-2000s, but you know, we, had it, we had it pretty good in the advertising business back then. So no, I, I started out, and that's actually where I learned most of my studio skills was working in a studio as a composer. 
like I said, my Berkeley education, I did not major in engineering. I majored in uh, synthesis and electronic music. So I, I never touched a microphone or put a microphone on anything until I graduated and worked at a studio. I've known some people and worked for some people in that world. It was probably even crazier working for an ad agency, but the turnaround time on ad stuff is like, is just absolutely nuts. So fast. Same day. Like same day approved and like chopped into video. I don't know about the video aspect. Generally what happens is a team of producers would come down to our studio, like 8.30 planning meeting. Yeah. And they would show us a rough cut of what the commercial is going to look like. And um, they said, we need, we want five or six ideas by 2 p.m. or something like that. So we would get to work, the composers would get to work and we would come up with some ideas. And then the producers would come back down at like two o'clock and you know, like we really like idea number three. And then by five o'clock, it'd have to be flushed out and sometimes recorded that same day. Like we had a binder of union musicians that we could contact at any time. Since they work in the advertising business, they know that this is how it works. They'll get a call at like 2 p.m. saying, hey, can you come in at 4 to record guitars on this thing? And then at 4 o'clock they would be there and the mix would be done by 5.30 and then the next day will be a totally different project. That's amazing. Yeah, it is very quick. Fresh out of college, you know, early 20s, not a lot of experience. How do you work that fast without like having to struggle with like perfectionism. I feel like when people are just getting into their industry, they really like second guess themselves and work too long on things. That obviously wasn't a choice for you. <laughs> that was very hard for me. I mean, personally, that, that was the hardest part about working in advertising is because getting right out of college, we were still artists. We were still like, I'm going to be the greatest X or whatever, right? <laughs> right, know? yeah. And then when you actually have to do it for somebody else, I think colleges have gotten better at this, to be honest with you. I can't speak for Berkeley, but I'm assuming that Berkeley is included in this, is that a lot of the music uh, composing world is you working for somebody else, not for yourself. Mm, yeah. And that was the biggest challenge. Like, look, you're doing what they ask you to do and you're doing it by three o'clock or you're not working. So it was kind of like sink or swim for me. I just had to learn to put my ego you know, in the back of my head and just say, there was one project that I had to do where I literally had to take a U2 song, a famous U2 riff, and go write something that sounds like this, but is not this, so we don't get sued. Like that's soul crushing for somebody who's a composer just getting out of college. You know what I mean? Like, oh yeah. You know, I spent so much time and so much effort and money, like learning all of these skills. And one of my first assignments is to essentially find a way to make people recognize this without being so similar that it's you know copyright infringement, <laughs> which was a real thing that I had to do for a commercial and. That crushed me. Like, honestly, that was incredibly soul-crushing. And I want to be clear, I'm not against it. Like, it's just something that people do. Like, that's how that industry works, and that's how that life works. And some people are very, very good at it. Yeah. Like, I think if I did it for 10 years, I would, I would hate myself. I had an ego. Like, I'm not going to lie. I, I, I was fresh out of college, and I'm an artist. I, I can do these great things and all this other stuff. Like, it was, it was hard, and I was not built for this kind of fast-paced, write the same ideas and the same stuff over and over and over again. But the positive thing about this is I think it's not like that anymore. Watching commercials now and seeing how things work now, I think companies have gotten hip to the fact that being an original musician is actually a good thing nowadays. Yeah. As long as you're good, obviously. Which is you know one of the reasons why that jingle industry kind of collapsed is people realized they didn't need jingles anymore. They could license an independent person to who already wrote something. Yeah. You know, like the database has got it better. The system's got better. They can just pop it out from somebody's original work. And man, sometimes it'll just take off. Yeah. And music licensing kind of took over jingle writing quite a bit. Yeah. I was going to say the libraries have gone just so low cost and the quality, I don't know, the libraries must have made an, you know, a 
purposeful decision to, I don't know how they did it, but the quality of music in a library now versus like 10 years ago, you're talking about completely different worlds. Mm -hmm. So I was going to go back. I feel like those people that spend a lot of time doing that jingle writing, they always have a really good relationship with a musicologist that they can send things to. And they're like, hey, is this, uh, are we in the clear here? How does this feel? Am I capturing the essence of this? I used to work for some composers and, and that would come up a lot. They'd be like, we need to send this to the musicologist to see if it is going to pass. And I'm like, okay, all right. Interesting. Well, give me the email. I'll send it to him. Interesting. I've never had to experience that. Maybe that happened behind the scenes that I just didn't know about, but yeah. that's awesome. Obviously, you said it was a little soul crushing for you. What was your exit from there and then getting into whatever you went to next? The exit from there was not by choice. <laughs> they closed the studio. Oh. <laughs> I mean, like, life happens, right? You know, I got out of college, it was 2006, and, um, you know, I did that stuff for a while and I did it as a freelancer and then that entire industry just kind of crashed as did many others uh, <laughs> at that time yeah. you know there, there were some really really big contracts that went to other advertising agencies and one of the first things to go was the in-house studios they they were like you know we can't this is a cost that we just can't manage anymore so you know I have no hard feelings towards it like this is business that's how things happen so I did it as a freelancer for a little bit and then I actually got a call this is one of my favorite stories to tell people, especially as an educator, because people don't think about like what kind of foot they leave. Like you know, you know how we always say like leave your best foot forward. Yeah. And like no one actually pays attention to that. But like this is one of those stories where I had my best foot forward and it came back to me randomly. And what happened was there was this new school that was opening in Chicago called Flashpoint. So this is 2008 now. I got this phone call and this guy leaves me a voicemail and says, "Hey, there's this new school that just opened in Chicago. We need somebody that knows ear training and music synthesis and signal processing." And uh, you know, I got your name and we want to talk to you. And I literally listened to the voicemail and I didn't call him back cuz I thought it was a scam. I was like, "What is this nonsense? Like there's no there's no music work in Chicago right now. This is ridiculous." It's a super specific scam. Yeah, like really. Like it was like tailored to me and I'm like, "What is going on?" But then, you know, I, I sat on it for two days. I'm like, I'm just going to call the guy back, whatever. Let's call him back. So I called him back and he's like, hey, my name is Miguel. I went to Berkeley 20 years before you did. We opened up this new school in Chicago and it's great. It's this really, really cool thing. And I contacted the music synthesis department at Berkeley because we needed somebody with these very specific skills. And I asked them, who do you have that we can trust that is really, really good in Chicago that can teach this stuff? And they gave him my name. I know I went through the process and I got hired and I started teaching there in 2009, technically. And it was just the weirdest thing because I was recruited. I did not expect that. Like, in, it's, it's one of those things where you know, I don't know if it was luck or if it was because I just left a really, really good impression at Berkeley or whatever, but like they called me, they got my name and they contacted me and I was essentially picked to teach at that school. Awesome. Yeah, it was such a surprise though because at that point, like it was the middle of the recession, you know, that 2008, 2009 recession, oh, yeah. like there was no work for anybody. Like all the advertisement agencies were trying to like survive. It was just one of those like weird things where like like I, I, it had to be a scam because why would somebody contact me to teach synthesis like in Chicago? What the hell? Yeah. So I went in, I talked to them. They gave me an offer to teach part time, and I was like, "Yeah, let's do it." So I started out part time, and 2011, Miguel left to go teach at a school in Austria. He got an offer to run uh, a music program out in Austria. And he's like, hey, you know, you should apply for my position and just do this full-time. So I did. I got hired full-time in 2011 and was there until earlier this year. Amazing. That's cool. Yeah, it's been awesome. So then uh, you transitioned into the chair of that program at some point. Yes, 2013. Okay. When you reach a position like that, do you like review curriculum? Do you make changes? Did you do anything like interesting like that? What kind of changes did you want to implement? 
So I didn't get to implement most of the changes that I wanted. The thing that I wanted to push the most is that I wanted us to be more competitive. Yeah. Not in the sense of like getting better students or whatever, but more like being competitive with the other schools. Because we're so small and we were such a no-name school that I wanted us, I made a big outreach for us to be known in the industry, so to speak. That was my biggest job or my biggest responsibility that I took upon myself as chair. As far as curriculum, we had a very, very good curriculum. We were kind of hamstrung by the fact that like, I, I think a lot of people don't understand how slow and how methodical educational institutions have to be when they change things. Mm. There are like literal like requirements by our creditors saying that we can only do so much change in a year because otherwise it's a new program and we have to apply to be a new program. I learned so much about administering all of that nonsense with the creditors and, and everything else. So a college's capacity to change is, is actually very, very limited by its accreditation, and uh, which is a good thing. You know, you, you promise something to your students in advertising, and if you change it midstream, then you're kind of bait and switching them too. So there's reasons for that. Yeah. But yeah, I was able to uh, grow the acoustics program. That was one of the things that I wanted to focus on. I wanted every single audio engineer to graduate my program had to have a very, very strong foundation in acoustics. Actually, I got that from Berkeley. I thought that was one of the most valuable things. I was surprised after the fact that only the engineering and synthesis students had to take acoustics at Berkeley. At this point, I think anyone that's studying music needs to learn acoustics. Did I take acoustics? <laughs> you did. How did I do? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you were in my class or not. I know you had to take at least one. I don't know if there were two semesters. No, there's only one semester of acoustics at Berkeley back then. But like, even if you're a cello player nowadays, and I'm, and I'm not saying like you have to be able to calculate you know, the, the, the reverb time in a room or whatever like that. Like, uh, but I think even nowadays, if you're a cello player, everybody that's in music is going to be doing stuff by themselves. Mm -hmm. Like that is how the industry is nowadays. You're going to be recording by yourself somewhere. You're going to have microphones. You're going to have interfaces. You're going to, going to be an entrepreneur, whether you like it or not. And having just basic knowledge in acoustics is just super, super valuable for anybody. It doesn't matter if you're a singer. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. You're going to be dealing with acoustics. So you have to be in front of it. So that was my biggest change that I made is that I made acoustics very, very important for the students. So I feel really, really proud of that, actually. <laughs> I know you're studying acoustics in a graduate program right now. I can't emphasize how important it is. Like I've worked in, I've worked in a bunch of studios. And it's like, you know, when you walk into like a Capitol or like a Henson or Avatar or any of the classic studios, you just kind of assume that everything sounds great and you kind of just trust mm -hmm. what you're hearing, right? Even though not every room's perfect, they all have their little imperfections. But when you start building your own rooms or like working in living rooms or making records like at beach houses or something, it is crazy to me how few people understand that the choices that they're making can be drastically affected. Yep by what they're hearing. And it's, you know, I'm going to say that I fell victim to this. I had a studio that I felt sounded really great. It did sound great. But now that I've built this new studio, like I've sworn off buying any plugins this year because I was buying plugins like searching for something. And now that I've really built a space that I think holds up to some of the rooms that I worked in at like Capital, now I can do the things that I want to do with the tools that I have. I don't have to buy a new tool now I can hear the things that I was searching for before. And maybe I shouldn't admit that on a podcast since I'm a mix engineer. But I just think that acoustics, everybody should, like you said, learn what you're hearing. Exactly. Learn how it's being affected by your space. It's so important. It'll save you so much money. <laughs> it's true. I think even, even in our days, we, we were spoiled listening to top engineers recording in top studios. Yeah. That's a very small world nowadays. Again, like you don't have to calculate 
I mean, you have to, you should be able to calculate room modes if you're taking acoustics, but like, <laughs> you know, I'm not expecting people to whip out differential equations, you know, like this is just basic understanding of like, I walk in a room and there's a ton of glass everywhere. That's going to affect sound significantly for any instrument. Yeah. People still make those mistakes nowadays. Like there's a, there's a venue in Chicago that again, will remain nameless that I record in all the time that has a ton of glass in it for natural light, but it was built for classical music. And I hate recording sopranos in that space because they just bounce. Like a soprano will ring out a room like you would not believe. No, no one thinks about how strong a voice is until they hear it at full blast. And sopranos, violins, well, the violins don't make that much sound, but like specifically sopranos and like brass instruments like trumpets yeah they will ring out in that space and it'll bounce off that glass and there is no plug in that's going to fix that sound but when i'm recording that space i have to get pretty close to the instruments just so i can add my own sound to them afterwards totally well we're kind of touching on it let's talk about acoustic ensemble recording a bit and your history doing that what's your general philosophy when you approach these more classical based acoustic ensembles and when you're on location second question mm -hmm. what's your setup like Great questions. So philosophical approach. I think there's, if, if you're somebody listening to this podcast and you want to get into small ensemble recording, meaning that you're either recording singer-songwriters, you know, like two musicians at a time, or you're in the classical world and you're recording like quartets and small groups of people, quintets or whatever, the general philosophical approach is, number one, you have to understand their music. Like you just have to. You don't have to know it. Like, there's a lot of things that I've recorded that were modern, and I'm just like, what the hell am I listening to right now? Like, it's not, but you have to do at least some homework and understand why, why the musicians are hiring you to do this thing. And I think it's important because anytime you're an engineer, and I learned this from Young Guru, who's like one of the coolest guys I've ever met in my life. One of these days, get him on this podcast. I'll put it on my list. Yeah. <laughs> he's done some amazing stuff. He has. And, uh, he's like, you know, any, anytime you're an engineer for somebody, you are delivering their baby. I'm like, interesting. That's one way to think about it. He's like, you're the obstetrician. You're the one that's actually delivering what they've created out into the world. And you have to approach it very, very seriously. So outside of all the technical stuff, like, you know, you have to come in there. And I think you know this because Capitol Records has this philosophy as well. You got to talk to the musicians about the music. That's by far the most important thing. For any genre. Really, yeah. yeah. You get them to understand that you're on their team making their music sound as good as possible, whatever it is that they're playing. Yeah. And the reason I mentioned that specifically with small ensembles is because small ensembles tend to be more intimate. You know, this is not an orchestra. The, you know, you're not dealing with 70 musicians. You're dealing with four or five. And they're going to combine those individual elements into something bigger than themselves. And as much as you hate to be that, you're a part of that. Like, you are part of the ensemble when you're recording something that small. You know, you're putting microphones over their heads and you're talking to them and you got to... It's almost like making friends. And in many ways, it is making friends. Like I'm friends with a lot of people that I've recorded. Where people fail on the philosophical end of recording small ensembles is that, and I've seen this happen, is that they're just not really that personable. And I hate to say that, but <laughs> like you can't be a machine coming in there and like Pro Tools is the machine. You're not. Like you're you're there to help them. And um, you know, bedside manner is really, really, really important with small groups. And especially with like singer-songwriters that are even more intimate than a small group. You know, make, make friends with these people. Yeah. From a technical point of view, I am actually a close-miking person. Okay. When I started out in the classical world, if you ever study classical recording, they're all going to say, make sure you get full coverage of the ensemble. You have to have your stereo pair, and then you have to have your omni-flanks, then you have to have the room mics in certain places, and et cetera. So it's, it's always about the, the ensemble and the room. And I think that's true for people that record in really, really nice spaces. 
Chicago has maybe two or three great sounding halls. And if I get to record in them, fantastic. But a lot of times I'm recording in some church and the church has a sound and it's a, sometimes it's a good sound, sometimes it's not a good sound for the ensemble. So I tend to do the regular thing where I put a stereo pair to cover the entire ensemble. Nowadays, I avoid using omni pairs. For those that have no idea what I'm talking about, I can go into more detail if you want, Travis. <laughs> but then I tend to spot mic as much as I can more so for insurance, because even if it is a great sounding room, sometimes I only have a half hour to prep. So if I put the mics in the wrong spot, I want coverage. I want to make sure that I can get it covered. And nowadays, you know, this is what, 2022? Like reverbs have gotten so good that you can do a lot of a lot of amazing work with reverbs that you couldn't do even 10 years ago. Yeah. Have you messed with the Vienna mirror reverb where you can kind of like move people around a space? No, I, I have not. Is that a convolution reverb? Yeah, it's like a super deep convolution reverb from the people that make the Vienna... The Vienna Symphony stuff? Yeah. No, I haven't messed. I tend to avoid convolution reverbs. I'm, I'm a big fan of algorithmic reverbs instead. So I, okay. I stick with the exponential audio stuff. I mean, if I can afford Bercasti, uh, I will use a Bercasti, but usually it's exponential that I work with. Okay. I, I haven't tried the exponential very much. Um, I know I have it through Isotope. What's your favorite one? R4. R4, all right. Yeah, I, okay. I love R4. It just gives you so much control. And I'm not, I'm not trying to shit on convolution reverbs. Nowadays, convolution <laughs> reverbs have a ton of control that you can do. But I'm a control freak, so I like having the algorithm in my hands. I like, I like being able to turn any knob I want to affect the sound yeah. in any way I want. Yeah, I've always gone back and forth on Altiverb. Like, I go through phases, and I have things that I like it for. <laughs> But the, the mirror thing's crazy. I haven't used it, but you can get like really specific. You can like take a violin and like put it in a specific place in a room, kind of like tilt it off to the side. Mm -hmm. Like it's, you should watch a video on it because it's pretty crazy. A lot of people got, got into it yeah. during the pandemic. I know Stephen Kay, who was on this podcast, was using it for a Netflix show that uh, Bridgerton, a lot of the scoring guys kind of started using it to solve the problem of all these individual players during COVID while they were mm -hmm. still doing shows. But yep. it's pretty interesting. For anybody that is uh, listening, like, what are these guys talking about? They've completely tangented. Well, welcome. We like the tangent. <laughs> but you were talking microphone patterns. Maybe that we should just run through that for anybody that is not familiar. You you were talking about an Omni pair, mm -hmm. and you work for a microphone company. So who better to talk about polar patterns <laughs> with than <laughs> than Yuri? <laughs> All right, sure. Uh, I'll make it relatively. Let's see. So I'll I'll start with Omnis because Omnidirectionals are the most natural patterns that you can get. And by natural, I mean an, an omnidirectional microphone picks up sound from every direction. I don't want to say equally because that's a misnomer. They don't pick it up equally. It uh, depends on frequency. But like when you put an omni microphone in a space, you're picking up everything. The reason why I want to start with omni is because I actually use omni microphones to close mic things quite often. And a lot of people in the classical world do it. You, you can tell me, Travis, how many times have you close mic things in studio with an omni mic? Less than you probably want me to say, but I know a lot of engineers <laughs> that everything's in Omni. A lot of those string sessions at Capitol, yep. everything's in Omni on the closes. Al Schmidt, amazing engineer, his big band trumpets were always in Omni. I mean, most of the time, yep. which always like blew my mind because they're right next to the trombones. They're all in a line. You're like, you want these in Omni? Yep. But Omni was the move. Yeah. Exactly. It's so weird, but it does a great job. Omni microphones tend to be the most transparent. You know, they'll, they'll pick up the actual sound that exists without coloration, so to speak. But they also pick up the room and everything else around them because that's what they do. But when I record piano, for example, I almost always record piano and Omni because piano is such a complicated instrument. And when you go to studio school, if you go to like recording schools anywhere, uh, you're almost always going to start by recording pianos and cardioid. 
And cardioid is the other popular mic pattern where your microphone's looking forward and a little bit off to the sides, but blocking everything behind it. So cardioid is incredibly popular everywhere because it's like taking a laser and pointing it directly at the sound source, essentially. And that's not that precise, but that's the idea, is that you, yeah. you point a cardioid microphone at something and it picks up the thing that it's pointing at and tries to reject everything else. And then you can have super cardioid, which does it even better and all that kind of stuff. But the problem with cardioid in some instances is that it doesn't pick up the entirety of the thing that you need. Like with piano, I've gotten to the point where I can always hear when somebody recorded piano with cardioid mics because there's always something missing. Amazing. Because piano is such a well-balanced, complex instrument that the moment you put cardioid microphones close inside a piano, you're only picking up the components of the piano that you're pointing those mics at. And you're ignoring that fill that happens under the lid and then goes out to the audience. Mm, yeah. That's the best way I could explain it. So with omnidirectional microphones, you don't have that problem. Because omnidirectional microphones, yes, they'll pick up louder whatever you put them next to, obviously, but they're also going to pick up everything else. You don't lose any information from a piano by recording it with Omni microphones, where with cardioid microphones, you almost always lose something. Again, if you're working on a pop record or a rock record and a piano is one of like 10 instruments and it's kind of like in the background, you're just hearing it playing a couple of chords here and there, yeah. and record, recording cardioid, no one cares. It's going to be missing information anyway. Yeah, over the hammers, get that cardioid hammer attack. Exactly. Well, here, here's a question. You know, forgetting that you're a sure employee, <laughs> but knowing that you're a piano player, mm -hmm. like what would be your your desert island piano miking any mics any position what, what would you do if you had to do it forever great question one setup okay <laughs> actually i can say this comfortably because sure does not make a competitor mic like this if i have one mic and nothing else this is going to be ironic because it's actually a cardioid mic but uh <laughs> <laughs> but i have such good experience recording pianos with akg c24s mm, yeah I just love them. And I, and I put them a little bit of a distance from the piano. They don't go inside the piano when I record piano. They go a little bit further back to minimize the cardioid effect and pick up as much of the full range of the piano as possible. But I have not found a better stereo mic, that combination, like the, other than the AKG C24. So as far as Desert Island, that, that would probably be it. But I've recorded so many pianos. Um, there's a pair of microphones that I like to use that I'm not going to say out loud because they are a direct competitor of Sure. But I also use Shure mics uh, on pianos. The most interesting thing about piano, and I want to say this to anybody who's listening who's an audio engineer, I would very, very much recommend being brand agnostic when you record pianos because the instrument is going to be the complex part of that process, not the microphones or the microphone technique. True. And you worked at Capital and you worked with Al Schmidt, so you know this too, but... I am nuts about microphone placement. I think microphone placement is so much more important than microphone choice. Agree. You know, like if I have a pair of whatever, I will make a piano sound great if I have enough time to to listen back to it and, and figure out how that inter instrument interfaces with the microphones that I have. Yeah, a great piano. I mean, what it all comes down to is is a great anything through any microphone mm -hmm. is ultimately great. It's, it's <laughs> such an interesting thing. I think people tend to forget how good microphones are now. Like, oh yeah. We live in a golden age of microphones and interfaces and preamps right now that never ever existed before. It's amazing how much good sound you can record nowadays if you, you know, know acoustics. Oh yeah. <laughs> well what you can get for such minimal investment is is mind blowing, you know? Absolutely. You can capture things now in a way that people fifty years ago had to go to a studio to capture. And, you know, cheap interface still gets shit on. And, you know, a cheap microphone still gets a bad rap. But in the end, it's what goes in 
And it's still far better than, than what you could have had. It's just more of like an elitist thing to be like, I hate that interface. Mm. It's not the interface's fault. <laughs> it's so funny. I'm, can I do a, a very quick product pitch? Like a 10-second product pitch? Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we have this microphone at Shure called the MV88+. Plus. It's, it's well known in some circles. And part of my job is to make it better known in other circles. Yeah. So it's, it's this like little stereo. It's this tiny, tiny mic. I don't have it with me, unfortunately. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd show it to you. It's this really, really tiny mid-side condenser microphone, right? So it's got two mics built in, one points to the front, one points towards the side. So it records, and then it can decode the mid-side for you, so you just record it in stereo and leave it, and it's great. Okay. And I have a whole series of videos that I've done, and I'm still working on where I'm putting it on classical guitar. I put one on a piano. I recorded a guitarist and a singer together with just the one mic. And of course, obviously, it's a selling point for sure because it sounds <laughs> great, but like... yeah. It's this tiny, tiny little thing, and it's all placement. It really is. Like the mic is good. Don't get me wrong. I, it's, a, it's a fantastic sounding microphone, but this is like a two hundred dollar mic that right. it sure makes. And if you take the time to understand the sound and how to mic things properly and, and put it in the right location, I, I want to be clear about this. There's no such thing as like a perfect location. By right location, it means like you're hearing it in your head the same way that you're hearing it in the mics then you can get some fantastic sounding stuff with like $200 microphones. Just incredible sounding stuff. I'm, I'm looking at this thing. Oh, the 88 Plus has an XLR. But then there's an MV88 that'll plug into your phone, right? The, the MV88 is discontinued now. That was the original model that just Got plugs it. directly into your phone. The MV88 Plus uh, superseded that. So. Got it. Okay. All right. I see. That's cool. You know, there's a mic, a friend of mine works for a producer that they love to use on drums, uh, the VP88, which I'd never heard of. That's our stereo mic. Yeah, until they were like, oh, this always has to go right here. It's like part of their sound. And um, I'm always like... It's great. Oh, okay, yeah. And then I've, pu I've put that on piano. It's a good mic. Yeah, I've never used a VP88, so... You don't see them a lot. You know all the usual suspects when you work in studios, and it's a right. microphone that doesn't pop up on the radar when you're walking into a studio, so you just, you're like, you just don't know it. Yeah, and that's actually also a part of my job is to kind of let people know that you know, we make other stuff besides the 58. <laughs> like, we're a company that makes a lot of really, really cool stuff. So yeah, part of my job specifically is to go places and bring like, you know, a KSM 42, which no one has ever heard of. And it's just a beautiful mic. So it's cool to hear that people are using like the VP88, like stuff that I haven't even actually been able to get my hands on yet because oh, yeah. it's relatively rare. Oh, on, on a bunch of records. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I put up a picture of Beta 181s the other day and one of my good friends, uh, actually one of our classmates, Martin. Have you ever met Martin Cook? Oh, yeah, yeah, Martin like, lives down the street, basically. In terms of Los Angeles, down the street. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, he's, you know, he's done a ton of major label recordings, and he, he does all sorts of really cool stuff. Great engineer. And you know, I put up a picture, because I eventualized Sure, and I put up Sure mics on my social media all the time. And, and he responds to me, he's like, man, I love those mics. I put those on drums all the time. Yeah. I'm like, hell yeah. Yeah. And part of my job is to be like, okay, Martin knows the Beta 181s, but most people don't. <laughs> like... <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. Like, I find that people that, you know, Martin is probably similar. Like, he's worked for a couple producers mm -hmm. for a long time. It's when you work for a specific person who's got their, like, quirks and their, like, yep. little, not secrets, but the thing that they do. And he probably picked that up from somebody that swears by that. And then he was like, oh, shit, this sounds awesome. Now he's doing it. It's like those little studio secrets that you don't get if you work in, like, a big studio mm -hmm. where everybody comes in and does similar things like the drum kit always goes here these are the mics we always use on strings right when you get into one of those other situations where a lot of times coming from 
just what you had. Like, oh, well, this is what we had, so we put it on this, and it was cool, so we used it like that for the rest of our lives. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you would have never put it on there initially. But uh, yeah, Martin's a good dude. I, I, he's, he's a synthesis major with you, right? That's probably where you guys he, know. He was, about. and he became a professional engineer. I think he was a dual. I think he did both synthesis and engineering. Yeah, no, he's a super talented engineer. He was on the podcast back, like, I don't know, 10, 15. Nice. He's a great guy. Back when I had no clue how to do an interview and how to tangent properly. But uh, let's talk a little bit before we go. Speaking of tangents. <laughs> yeah, sure was gracious enough to let you come on here because I know you probably had to get permission mm-hmm. since you work for a company. Let's talk about what you're doing for them. I, I know you're doing some kind of like educational tour I saw you posting about. You, mm-hmm. So a big part of it is brand awareness, I guess, really. Yes, yes, that's that's a big part of it. I'm not exaggerating here. I probably have the best job in the world. Like I <laughs> never in a million years thought I would be working in the position that I'm working in now. And I'm so glad that I am because... My job is to, I don't want to use the word evangelize because that's not the right word. Sure is a very, very honest company and I I absolutely love that about them. My job is to teach people things and involve Sure as much as I can. And it's, it's wonderful. So the technical title is market development. And the idea behind that is I grow the market for Sure just by being around and talking about Sure stuff. Right. And that's a very generalized thing, but it's honestly what I do. And it's fantastic. And, it, and in a certain way, it's actually really entrepreneurial because I get to kind of decide how I do it, you know, to some extent. Right. There are things like, we, you know, we have promotions, we have things that are top down from the business that says, hey, look, you know, we're, we're releasing this new product, get this in the hands of these social media people or whatever. Like we have like the, the very directed stuff as well. But there are other times where like I shoot video content and I'll go to my boss and be like, hey, I'm going to record a piano with the NVDA Plus and do a video. Cool. Yeah, let's do it. And then I go and do it. And the best part is I don't have any sales goals. So when people talk to me about like audio engineering or sure stuff or acoustics or whatever, like I'm not, I'm not hard selling them on anything. Yeah. You know, the soft sell is I truly enjoy using this stuff and I talk about it from a user's perspective. And, and like that gives me a certain level of freedom that I think generally salespeople don't tend to have because I don't have to close the deal. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I go and I talk. So they throw me into, uh, there's a couple of us in different departments. So I'm on the retail end, which means that I talk about anything that can be sold essentially at Sweetwater, let's say, or Guitar Center or whatever, right? So like all of our studio mics are under my purview, all of our like retail podcast mics, and then wireless systems up to like very entry level Axiom Digital are also in my purview because you can get that stuff at retail outlets. So my job is to know those things. An artist will come to me and ask me a question about SLXD or whatever, and I have to be able to answer it for them or get them to people that know the answer. You know, somebody wants to buy something, they can reach out to me. Like my job is to be accessible. People on social media will reach out to me all the time, be like, hey, you know, I want in-ear monitors. What do you recommend? I'm like, 846s all the time. No, <laughs> I'll, I'll ask them questions. I'll be like, you know, what are you trying to do with your, on your monitors? Like, do you need a subwoofer? Do you need, you know, good low end? Do you need really, really good high end because you're a guitarist and you don't want to hear your parts and stuff? At the end of the day, my job is to get people more educated about our products and also just about acoustics, audio engineering, all the stuff. They hired me because I'm an educator, because I'm Hopefully, I don't know if this is translating well in this podcast or not, but (laughs) my goal is not to be a gearhead. My goal is to know the gear inside and out like a gearhead would, but also be able to communicate about it at any level at any given time. And it's hard to do. That's the challenge of the job is somebody will be buying something for the first time and they have no idea how to use it. And then somebody on tour, something breaks and they'll contact me as well and be like, hey, what's what's the process for getting this to work again? You know, and, and everything in between. That's cool. I love it. 
that sounds like, I mean, when I saw you at NAMM, you were super excited. So I was like, oh yeah, we gotta, we gotta hang out on the podcast. <laughs> you know, it sounds like, you know, I think a lot of companies have tapped into this, but a lot of people and a lot of companies haven't. And basically what you're talking about is you're talking about bringing more value to people regardless of sales. It, like, it sounds like if you have a conversation with somebody and the cheaper in-ears are better for them, you're going to do what's better for them and be like, hey, you know what? This tier is going to be what fits for you, not the one that's, you know, three price tags up. I think that's how you win people over to your brand, regardless of whether we're talking about microphones or not. It's like, you have to bring more, especially there's so many competitors. I mean, how many microphone companies are there? How many mix engineers are there? It's like, you have to bring mm -hmm. more value than everybody else. You know, everybody already knows that Sure makes great microphones. So yeah, your job is to convince people. Exactly. Keep it top of mind and remind people that they're a great company and they care about mm -hmm. the people making music. So it's cool. And exactly. And in, in certain ways, and this is probably not healthy work-wise, but in general, like it's, it's also a personal thing for me, right? Like I want somebody to trust me with my advice. You know, like if I just go and I sell them the most expensive, most profitable thing all the time, you know, they're, they're going to catch wind of that after a yeah. while, right? Like we want to be a trusted brand. We want people to come talk to me because I gave them good advice before. And that's important. So I think you hit it right on the head there. You know, it's not about making the instant sale. It's about building relationships and building trust with whoever our consumer base is. You know, you mentioned the college tour that I'm doing. You know, that's part of it is like, I'm visiting a bunch of colleges and I'm going to talk about sure stuff. Like, yeah, there'll be like sales incentives and stuff. You know, we might do a discount or something if somebody wants to buy something. But the idea is not to make the instant sale. The idea is to be like, look, Yuri's a guy that we can contact at sure if we have a question and we can trust him. He's not going to try to sell us something that we don't need. And True. You know, that's important. Yeah. I think everybody in this industry has had their like guitar center guy or their their vintage king person or whatever. And it's like, I think about all the people I've gone through and the ones that I always went back to to buy from were the ones that were helpful people, not the ones that were like, okay, cool, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get you 10% off on this, but you know what else you should get? You should get this and this and this. And I'm like, I work in a recording studio. I don't need any of those things. I came in here for this thing. <laughs> He's like, okay, what about this? I'm like, I don't need that. But uh, yeah, it's like, that's what sticks with people, whether they value you as a person, really, I guess. Right. And there's a lot of responsibility because like, I'm one of the faces of the brand now. We have several, but you know, like I'm on social media, I'm talking about it to other people. Like there's a lot of responsibility with that. You know, people don't think about it very often, but like I take it seriously. I, I want people to, I don't want to ever feel like I'm not being trusted. Yeah. Now that you're doing more social media type stuff and like talking to more people, you know, cause I, I don't remember how much you were on social media in the past. Is this like being out there and being a face of something? Is that a new thing for you? No, not really, because that's what I tried to do when I was an educator at Flashpoint as well. I okay. tried to become kind of like the face of, of our recording arts department. So no, honestly, that didn't phase me at all. That, that's okay. actually one of the things that I truly, truly enjoy. And it's good because I, I like things that are not so much high pressure, but high responsibility. I like owning things, yeah. and I like delivering on the things that I own. That's, that's a really, really good feeling for me. So it, I, I get adrenaline out of it. And, and, you know, as you said, like at the NAMM show, like you, you met with me and I was like super excited to talk to you about stuff. Like at like 10 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> <laughs> lots of coffee, but you know, but that's real. And that's one of those things. Like if I was doing this for a company whose product I didn't believe in, I would not be able to do that. Like I'm not faking it. You know what I mean? Like this is, I'll talk to you about the MVNA plus. Like, I mean, you can ask my wife, like I'll talk to her about your stuff. And she's like, dude, you're not working right now. I'm like, I don't care. Like this stuff is great. Check this out. <laughs> It's a wonderful part of the job. The, the only adjustment that I had to make 
is that I was not a video creator before. Mm, yeah. This is something that I'm still learning. I would love to tell people that I'm really, really good at making videos. And I actually met with an acting coach and I'm like, how do you, like, I'm talking to you right now, but I'm talking to a camera, you know, uh, but it helps. Yeah. And when I don't have somebody else to talk to, like if I'm shooting an explainer video on a new product or something, like I have to pretend that I'm talking to another human being, even if I'm not, because otherwise it looks really, really fake. And these are things that I never actually had to think about before. Yeah. But there's just a whole aspect of video making and being a creator that I never, ever, ever had to think about before. And I'm still adjusting to it. It's tough. I shot a, uh, a YouTube video for the fabled Progressions YouTube that will one day potentially <laughs> finally come out. But yeah, it's like when you go back, I see myself like every time I looked at my script or every, like you're like, oh, that's not compelling. I'm not even looking at the person. I'm like looking at the side for a second. Mm -hmm. And there's so many things that go into editing. You're right. It's a whole different presentation because even doing video clips of the podcast now, somebody be like giving amazing information that I know I want to chop into like a clip and I'm fully engaged listening to that person, but I might also be like looking at the next question that I have over in my notes. And then I look mm. like, I don't care. And this person's like giving the gem of the entire interview. And I'm like, and it, you just have to remember that the camera's on. The camera's a different game, man. It's a different game. It is. <laughs> and I've tried to do that. I've tried to put up a script and then I, I do it and it sounds fantastic. It's beautiful. And I watch it back and like my eyes are going from the left side to the right side because I'm reading the friggin' thing, right? And yeah. I watch my eyes in videos all the time because my eyes tend to wander. I have to get used to just, you know, right now I'm talking to you looking at the camera and... You're staring right at me. For anybody that's not watching, they, he's staring right at me. <laughs> Isn't it great? And... uh the funny thing is, like, there were, there were times in this podcast, if you watch the video later, you're going to see my eyes looking this way and my eyes looking at that way. And I'm, and I'm still focusing. I just don't really pay attention to where I look until I, I'm conscious of it. Yeah, it's a trick. You know, I've been really into this stuff because I like to go down rabbit holes. But mm -hmm. I watch these, like, YouTube creators. And I saw a video where somebody showed how they make their video. We're, like, 50 minutes in. People are jumping off. They're, like, all right, they're talking about YouTube. Fuck this. But they do, like, multiple takes. So they'll be, like all right, today we're going to talk about this. And if they don't like it, they hold still. And they're like, okay, today we're going to talk about this. And then that's the take they want. And then they move on. And they go like line by line. And then when they go back and chop, you know, everybody does those like jump edits where there's like no space anyway. Yep. And I started doing that when I read my podcast intros. They're scripted. If anybody thought that they're not, thank you for thinking I'm <laughs> that intelligent, but I'm not. But I read. And if I feel like there's something that I could do better in that paragraph, I'll just bounce back and read that paragraph. And then when I chop the audio, I could just go back like that. Anyway, that's my YouTube mm. tip for you. But I would have nice. never thought about that if I didn't see it on YouTube. And then you're just like, oh, well, why didn't I think of that? But that's not how I make records. So <laughs> you do what you know. Yep. All right. We got a couple questions. You've, you've heard the show before. You know the ending questions. So I'll, I'll hit you with those and let you get back to your day. Was there a time in your career that you chose to redefine what success meant to you? I love this question so much. Um, <laughs> so I tend to redefine it often. I like it. And I, I don't know if, if you've gotten this answer before, and I'm sure you have, but my definition of success changes all the time. And I don't know how well you knew me at Berkeley, but you've had some of our mutual friends on this program before, like Kavi. You yep. had Corey Streppel on here as well, right? I did, yeah. 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 If you ask Kavi or Corey what I was like in college, you'd be shell-shocked as to how they describe me <laughs> compared to like, you know, in, this, in the sense that I like did not sleep. Like I was, I don't like to use the word perfectionist because that's a dumb word. There's no such thing as perfection, but I was so focused and so 
So back then, to me, success was being the best, whatever that meant. I don't even know what the hell the best meant. I just knew I wanted it. So I would just constantly be practicing. You know, like I would, anytime there was a new software that came out, I would read the entire manual and, you know, know it front and back. Like it was just like a very obsessive personality. And I still have that. I still have inklings of that quite often. And that's one of the things that makes me really effective at Shore is that I can learn new products really, really quickly. And I can talk about them at a high level relatively quickly. So, but I've toned it down quite a bit. <laughs> so like back then, success was like, no one is going to know this stuff better than me. Right. And that has served me really, really well. As I've gotten a little older, I've found other ways to be successful. I've never thought about happiness. I would just draw happiness from being the best. Right. But that fades after a while. That competitive drive, you get burnt out, you get tired. You find out that like you have friends that are doing really, really fun things and you're not partaking in those fun things because you're practicing all the time. So then my idea of success kind of morphed into like getting a better balance, not like a great balance. I, I am not a person you want on your show to talk about work-life balance. Uh, <laughs> I'm just not. I, it's, it's, I'm not good at it. But it's definitely better than what it was when I was in college. But I'm slowly taking steps on being able to enjoy other things that are not work. Yeah. And it's hard, but I'm getting at it. Luckily, I've never actually defined my success financially. Even at Berkeley, I was like, as long as I can pay my bills and eat good food, that's success to me. Like I never had stars in my eyes, so to speak. I don't know if that's the case with other guests that you've had on this show, but that first year of college, that was beaten out of me. I'm like, I'm not going to be famous. Like that's not in the cards and I don't care. Yeah. I don't want to be that person. I don't want that life. Like I want to just enjoy doing the thing and making enough money to live doing the thing. Yeah. So that's how success for me has evolved. And it's still evolving now. If and when I ever have a family, that definition will change, you know, as as you probably personally know now. Very different. (laughs) Yeah. Like now you have another human to take care of and like success changes quite a bit, right? Yeah. But like I would say this, I'll close it out with that and say that. My position right now at Sure, to me personally, is probably the most successful I've felt because it's the most, (laughs) this is going to sound funny because I've already mentioned it several times, it's the most in control that I've felt. I feel comfortable. Like I'm working my ass off and I'm doing 10,000 things and there's stress and there's deadlines and all this other stuff, but I'm controlling my work right now. Yeah. So it's entrepreneurial in a sense that I'm like, Today I'm going to do this video. Tomorrow I'm going to learn about this new wireless system or whatever. You know, um, I am keeper of my schedule. Yeah. As long as the deadlines get met, and I've never been in a position like that before, and I hope everyone feels that at least once in their life. There's that that feeling of like I am working very very hard, but I can always step away for a few minutes and enjoy a coffee or, or do whatever. And you know, my boss is not going to get on my case about it. Like it's it's just a great in the, in that aspect. I'm the most successful I've ever been. That's cool. I love that. And then the last question before we go, obviously there's things you probably can't share, but what is your current biggest goal right now? And what is the next small step you're going to take to go towards it? I love that question too. So I don't have like a five-year or 10-year plan. You know, like my life just changed drastically, you know, a year ago when I've changed careers. My studies in acoustics, I'm in grad school for acoustical engineering. That actually happened before I got the job at Sure, but it just worked out so well that I'm just going to keep doing it. And, you know, my, my goal is to grow within the sure ecosystem. And I, I, to me, this is a career. I don't expect to change careers anytime in the near future. I'm a pretty dedicated person. And uh, I, I don't know what that growth is going to be. I'm still learning stuff. I'm still a year in. And I've had this conversation with my boss. We just had our review, you know, whatever the annual review that we do. 
Uh, corporate reviews. Yeah, it's got to love those annual reviews. Uh, and she's like, you know, what do you want? I'm like, dude, I'm still learning. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what I want. I'm enjoying my job and I'm, and I'm progressing in every way that I want to be progressing right now. So ask me again in like three years, right? So like my goal is, again, just to know stuff. It goes back to that thing at Berkeley. Like my goal is to know everything. That's what I want to do. I get personal enjoyment in being an expert and being able to tell people truths and things. Like... My long-term goal is to be an expert. And what department of sure that's going to be in, I don't know. Maybe it'll be in this department. Maybe, I, I don't know, maybe I'll be an engineer one day. Like, I'm getting a master's degree in engineering. Like, I'm literally, you know, going to be able to design microphones and headphones and stuff. Like, whatever. I have no idea where it's going to take me. I just want to know things. Yeah. And I just want to be able to have access to answers. So I know that's probably not a typical answer to that question, but... I think it's great. I think it's great. So before we go, please share whatever you want about working with you. Sure. Anything. This is your little moment to share whatever with, uh, with listeners. Oh no. The pressure is on. Um, I know. Well, first of all, thank you. I, I hope I wasn't boring. Thank you guys so much for, uh, you know, listening to this podcast and I hope you enjoyed it and you got some knowledge out of it. You know, my, one of my jobs at Shore is to be accessible. So, if people want to ask questions, first of all, about any of the things that we talked about on this podcast, but generally, if you've got questions about audio engineering, questions about acoustics, that's like a big thing for me, or sure, anything like sure products, or really sure anything nowadays, um, you know, don't be afraid to reach out to me. Like, I want to be an open book to people. You know, I can't talk about future products, but other than that, I want to be an expert to people. So then, if I don't know the answer, I will say I don't know the answer because that's part of being trusted, right? So, Reach out to me on you know Instagram. My Instagram is Yuri Music, Y U R I Music, all one word. That's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. I, I live on Instagram. It's just it's just great. I'm also on LinkedIn if you want to connect to me on LinkedIn or whatever. But Instagram is usually the best way to follow me, get a hold of me, talk to me about sure stuff, talk to me about audio engineering, talk to me about acoustics. I'm happy to answer any questions. Amazing. Dude, this was a great hang. I'm glad we got to catch up. Yeah, you too. Outside the hectic Nam vibes, <laughs> I didn't know what you've been up to. So this is this is great. Some of these podcast episodes are really just for me to reconnect with people. <laughs> but uh, this was a lot of fun, man. I enjoyed this conversation a lot. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. So, yeah. So that's a wrap for episode 72. Thanks to Yuri for hanging out. Be sure to find him on the internet and follow what he's up to. Also, thanks to Stephen Boyd for editing this episode. You crushed it again. And finally, thanks to all of you for listening. If you have not shared the show with a friend ever, please consider it. We are literally growing this thing one person at a time, and I would greatly appreciate it. Also, don't forget to check out our room over on the Complete Producer Network. You'll find links to that in the show notes. So on that, I will see you all next time.